Ask anyone from India to draw a scenery quickly, and most people would intuitively scribble the following. Two or more triangles in the background, signifying a mountain range, a thick bar of the waterfall gushing from somewhere in between that suddenly transforms into a river, and a one-story house with a pitched roof in the foreground, basking in its idyllic surroundings. This is despite the fact that the majority of the country does not dwell in the highlands but plains, nor do contemporary buildings partake in a slanting roof or a single floor plan as regularly as in the past. This commonplace archetypal idea of scenery for a population of 1.4 billion might articulate a nostalgic, even childish approach to how imagined landscapes are collectively framed. But therein lies its significance, too. Such scenery effortlessly illustrates the notion of ecology in its most elemental, etymological form. As a portmanteau of the Greek words oikos, meaning house, and logia, meaning study of, ecology, first and foremost, points to the study of human dwelling. Today, even as we overwhelmingly use the term for its natural connotation, the original import of ecology prompts us to consider both human dwelling and the naturally occurring environment in essentially interlinked terms. So while the house of the scenery may seemingly occupy the center stage, its roof must invariably mirror the slope of the mountains in the background, representing the pinnacles of imagination, pun intended. Welcome to Global Disconnect, the podcast that unravels the intricate connections and disconnections shaping our world. Join us as we explore the multifaceted dimensions of globalization beyond traditional narratives. From the spread of ideas to the experiences of individuals living between cultures, we delve into the social significance of these global processes. Get ready to challenge your perspectives and uncover the true complexity of our interconnected world. The affinity of architecture with the natural environment becomes apparent early on to people who grow up in the Himalayas, especially from observing the many ancient villages and small town settings strewn all over the landscape. Historians of the Himalayas, like Chetan Singh and Anakita Lam, have emphatically argued that what sets traditional mountain societies apart from other subcontinental cultures is their high degree of dependence on the natural topography. While in the plains, one could build structures of vast proportions with several stories owing to the land's flatness. In the hills, this very feature had to undergo an inevitable shift, with habitable spaces varying anywhere between 400 to 4,000 meters above sea level. The physicality of the mountains has always played a decisive role in determining the materiality of human-made dwellings. In other words, a mountain home in its purest sense necessarily implies a balance between the natural and the cultural, an equilibrium that is now fast disappearing under the ill-conceived developments of modernity. The idea of dwelling or home is generally considered a precious one, even sacred for that matter even though it may mean different things to different people. Amply romanticized in culture since the beginnings of history and intrinsically linked to the ideas of belonging and identity, home indexes the embodied ideals of comfort, safety, and bonhomie. Homes make us as much as we make them. While the entity of the house is possibly the most obvious transmitter of home, 
The environment in which the house finds itself, a neighborhood, a locality, a village, a town, a city, a landscape, equally, if not more, contributes to the character and ambience of home. Hilly regions generously and evocatively lend themselves to this aspect because the outside and the inside are always conversing. Views from one's windows matter as an essential part of the house itself, as does the last tray of the sun peeling away from the flank of a distant hill. In this way, the word pahar, Hindi for mountains, routinely becomes synonymous with gahar, Hindi for home. India being a largely tropical country dominated by plains, heights continue to define a much-loved and often revered other. Countless mountains and summits serve as homes of local gods and goddesses. And hill people themselves express a great pride and satisfaction in the distinctiveness of their landscape. If the recent happiness surveys of India's best states are anything to go by, the regions bagging the top spots would only further prove this link between mountain living and well-being, given that they are located in the Himalayas. Two ideas frequently characterize the popular perception of mountain life. One is the idealized and romanticized image of dwelling in a healthful, scenic setting. The other is that of a certain toughness of spirit, which is the hallmark of all mountain societies. Given the undulating terrains and demanding weather conditions that must be navigated daily. From a critical perspective, it is tempting to align the first image with the tourist gaze and the second with hill people's actual life. While this view has some truth, the binary doesn't exist in absolute terms. Notwithstanding their hardships, hill people, for centuries, have been aware of inhabiting a space that is vastly different from the plain-based cities. This space invariably demands a sensitive attunement towards nature aesthetically and work-wise. And such attunement doesn't only include the staple professions of agriculture, horticulture, and pastoralism, but also the practices of architecture and spatial planning that have evolved over many hundreds of years in concert with the natural surroundings. The much-touted aphorism that a house is built by bricks but a home is built by hearts perhaps needs a little tweaking in the case of highlands because the phrase presupposes a necessarily inferior status for material ingredients in contrast to heartfelt emotions. In the mountains, materiality always matters. And once we begin to educate ourselves about the different kinds of building styles prevalent in the Himalayas, we start gaining a complex understanding of how nature guides culture. Among the most well-known traditional building techniques in the Himalayas are the Kothkuni, Kodi Banal, and Dahaji Divari styles of the Middle Himalayas, as well as the mud-brick slate roof style of the Lower Himalayas. Both the Kathkuni and the Kodibinal methods are variations of the Kater and Cribbage template that have evolved over hundreds of years in the upper reaches of the mountains. In Kathkuni, which translates as wooden corner, alternate horizontal layers of stone and wooden beams are stacked together without any cementing materials to create long-lasting walls, often supporting intricately carved overhanging balconies to let the sunshine in. Similar to the Kathkuni is the Kodi Banal style, which derives its name from a village in Uttarakhand. The only major exception is that we sometimes find vertical timber passing through the horizontal wooden beams for added fortification. 
These templates created dwellings, shrines, and shelters for gods, goddesses, and cattle. And like most indigenous architecture, the buildings were made by the people who lived in them or used them in some capacity. In both Kothkuni and Cody Banal, the ground floor is reserved for the cattle, the middle is for the fodder, and the uppermost for human habitation. Since it gets freezing during the winters, the cattle aren't kept outside but drawn into the folds of the walls, and its methane release helps keep the overall structure warm. The lack of cement and the use of sockets for fixing stone and wood in a horizontal format also ensures superb seismic resistance, given that the whole of the Himalayas lies in an earthquake-prone region. We witness a perfect synthesis of human vision and environment in the lower and more sprawling valleys. Here, the mud-bricked, slate-roofed building style evolves out of the rich presence of clay and slate, and the availability of pine and bamboo trees. The whole process is contingent on natural forces. For instance, the bricks are made out of a mixture of soil, sieved mud, water, and straw, which is pugged with the help of an ox or a cow for several days. Cow dung is of significant use, as its ability to reduce the sun's harmful radiations allows it to be converted into a coating plastered all over the floor and the walls. Along with this, a layer of neem and clove oil is applied to keep the termites away. The bamboo shoots used as rafters for the ceiling are only cut after a week of the full moon at the onset of winter, since they are believed to have the lowest sugar content during that phase. Unlike the Kothkuni and Kodibanal styles, these mud-bricked houses are usually single structures, but like the former, these dwellings also treat animals as part of the human family. Thus. The building techniques used for cattle residences, often placed along the courtyard, are the same as those used for humans. In the past, nomadic pastoralists would also use the low-raised floor above the cattle pens, otherwise used for storing fodder, during their seasonal migrations from the higher Himalayas to the lower valleys. Yet another building technique is that of the Dahaji Divari, a variation of the wattle and daub template widespread all over Europe, Africa, and other parts of Asia, consisting of an infill of clay, stone, and pine needles that would form patched quilt walls via an overall timber-caged framework, the Dahaji Divari was popularized during the colonial times. Owing to its resemblance to the Victorian Neo-Tudor building style, the British-era architects birthed numerous hybrid designs at the intersection of Himalayan and European aesthetics. Again, a fine blend of sturdiness, elegance, and seismic resistance. All of these building styles stemmed from the earth, so instead of appearing on artificial outcrop, they gave the impression of growth and natural continuity. Around three to four decades into independence, hill societies started experiencing a drastic change in their architectural ethos. Even as the inauguration of cement factories, high-rise structures, and newer advancements in building technology ostensibly ushered in novel symbols of modern development, their indiscreet application across massively varying geographies necessarily augured trouble for many places. This was especially true of hilly landscapes such as Himachal Pradesh and Uttarakhand, where no one had ever lived in buildings above a few stories high devoid of local materials. 
After 1947, more than any other area of human concern, architecture and urban planning couldn't come up with a robust, sustainable, and wide-scale creative vision for itself, the disastrous consequences of which are felt to this day. As India's foremost writer on the subject, Gautam Bhatia has observed, In three quarters of a century since independence, little has changed in Indian planning, urbanism, architecture, or ways of thinking. No attempt has been made to define, in a common language, the kind of architecture we would like to live in. The civic disorder of places confounded by squalid government construction, extravagant private commerce, and mounting slums continues. If you gauge the state of architecture in India, it invariably begins in a rousing groundswell of good intentions and ambition, but then, on closer examination, quickly peters out into an erratic, rudderless uncertainty. Little of the country's political moods, its national and international affiliations, have drawn attention to any new logic or precise ideals. No creative influence challenges the mild suppositions on which the country's post-independent architecture was built, the borrowed scaffold that allowed us to project that India was meant to be a free-thinking place of private depth and public magnitude. It bears rethinking that in the absence of an institutional culture, architecture can only be a private, inconsequential activity. People build on whim, day in and day out, adding personal appendages of construction to new or previous assemblies, adding to the jumbled mix. This jumbled mix overwhelmingly defines the built character of India including the hills where most new buildings and city plans are indistinguishable from their plain-based counterparts. Not only does this development quash the historical and visual sense of a mountainous terrain by ultimately going against its gradually evolved ethos, it also doesn't hold to its promise of providing a revolutionary alternative to old ways of living. Most modern structures erected in hilly terrains hardly stand guard against natural calamities, whether earthquakes or floods. In late 2022, the popular pilgrimage and tourist town of Joshimat in Uttarakhand hit the national headlines for precisely these reasons, almost all of whose houses developed cracks due to the sinking ground they stood on that was itself constituted of loose landslip mud. Joshimat now lies at the brink of complete collapse. Most recently, in July and August 2023, the state of Himachal Pradesh witnessed its most calamitous flash floods in collective memory. And among the colossal damage were the houses and roads that had been recklessly constructed in the floodplains and along shaky, felled slopes, all within a matter of the last few decades. In another such example, many people complain of illnesses resulting from the imprudent usage of cement and marble in the contemporary dwellings of the higher Himalayas since they failed to provide the natural insulation against heat and cold earlier delivered by indigenously procured materials. In May 2022, the popular Times magazine carried a cover story that drew attention to this relationship between climate and health. The piece titled Western Architecture is Making India's Heat Waves Worse sheds light on how, after the economic liberalization in the 1990s, 
a rapid shift away from climate-specific architecture started to define the Indian landscape, exacerbating the current climate crisis. The article rightly argued that the shift was partly aesthetic. Developers favored the glassy skyscrapers and straight lines, deemed prestigious in the U.S. or Europe, and young architects brought home ideas they learned while studying abroad. But the title of the piece was also somewhat disingenuous, since it cunningly put the entire onus of Indian architectural failure on the West. For one, the heading didn't acknowledge the fact that it was the Indian development model itself that approved of such transplantation of ideas in the first place. Secondly, it also presented Western architecture through a monolithic lens, pitting it against the indigenously robust architecture of pre-independent India as if there was no indigenous architecture in the West. In truth, however, Western architectural templates have been mixed and merged with Indian styles for centuries, including within the Himalayas, where, as already mentioned, the 19th century Dhachi Divari technique of building found strong resonances with the English New Tudor style. Thus, instead of directly apportioning the blame to Western models, it is crucial to nuance our language of criticism. Bhatia is again instructive here. For while he too finds flaws in the implementation of Western models on a foreign landscape, he simultaneously draws attention to the quality and context in which this change started taking place. Indian architecture's moral dilemma is in fact all the more cruel for ensuring that any and all forms of carefully cultivated Indian practices are quietly buried under the debris of second-rate foreign images. So far, the only real measure of architecture had been the link to some deeper social or political history. Indian modernism grew as a self-styled understanding of buildings, a formal geometric exercise. Soon after, independence architects aligned their narrative to new political thinking and the concerns of a new nation in need of institutions. Working on a broad, empty slate, their work sought to define the fabric of an emerging democratic society. The resultant scale of construction included dams, bridges, institutions, science centers, legislative complexes, civic facilities, new modernized structures of such size and girth that architecture was a defining catalyst of great significance. Unfortunately, whenever European modernism was practiced in India, the architect was building in exile. Mainstream architecture's self-importance always fed on keeping the public in the dark. It was the primary method that kept architecture mainstream. In other words, an enabling, organic relationship between an independent public ethos and architecture practice has yet to develop in post-independent India. What we instead have is a strange skewing of creative and practical vision to the extent that aggressive individualism has become the order of the day. This is not to say that India hasn't produced good architects in the contemporary era. One is only to look at the inspiring works of world-renowned visionaries such as B.V. Doshi and Charles Correa, who have blended a strong public sensibility with a sustainable Indian imagination. But given the largeness of the country, such examples strike as but a drop in the ocean. And Batia's remarks hold true for most of the country, including the mountainous regions. 
Perhaps most tragic in the context of the Himalayas is the sheer indifference that has characterized the reception of public pleas and protests against such development. Despite the many voices in the region that have firmly stood against the barrage of shoddy novel projects, such endeavors have brazenly proceeded ahead. For instance, in the case of Jashimith, residents have started noticing cracks in their houses more than a year before the crisis became a national headline. But every citizen intervention fell on deaf ears. And as if the Joshimath crisis or the destructive flash floods weren't enough as cautionary statements, a bench of judges belonging to the Supreme Court of India permitted in July 2023 to throw open all the formerly designated green areas of Himachal Pradesh's capital Shimla for new construction. This was done as part of the proposed 2041 Shimla Development Plan. As everyone in the region knows, the reason was the pressure from the builders' lobby, which wields an astonishing amount of power over politicians, bureaucrats, and the judiciary. When the highest lawmaking body of the country is unable to ensure the protection of the last remaining forested land, what hope do we have for any other place? As the anthropologist-activist Lokesh Ohari writes of the current predicament of the hills, The post-colonial state itself suffers a deep entrenchment of corporate interests and contractor lobbies. Sane voices in the mountain states are in no position to voice their concern over development policies doled out from the centre, gratefully accepting and implementing whatever is on offer. At the centre, too, there is little effort to hear voices on the ground, the ones that could narrate the truth of the crumbling Himalayas. There is no realization that what works in the plain-based states of the country may not work in the mountains. Hence, the current voicelessness and the frustration that allows massively destructive development projects to be accepted silently without as much as a whimper of protest from the communities that once offered their bodies for trees. Ohari here refers to the Chipko movement of the 1970s which became a paradigmatic expression of rural resistance against government-backed logging, where protesters hugged trees, wrapping their arms around their trunks so they couldn't be felt. It is not that we don't have such protesters today, but there is a mounting realization that the powers that be wield much greater leverage than ever before. And between such frustration and acceptance arises a disconnect to be witnessed in every aspect of mountain life a disconnect embodied most forcefully by architecture. In his well-regarded 2006 work, The Architecture of Happiness, the philosopher Alain de Botton explores how architecture is directly and indirectly related to the sphere of human emotions, not just functionality, he says. We depend on our surroundings obliquely to embody the moods and ideas we respect and then to remind us of them. We look to our buildings to hold us like a kind of psychological mold to a helpful vision of ourselves. Bad architecture is in the end as much a failure of psychology as of design. It is an example expressed through materials of the same tendencies which in other domains will lead us to marry the wrong people, choose inappropriate jobs and book unsuccessful holidays. The tendency not to understand who we are and what will satisfy us. 
The failure of contemporary architectural ethos in the Himalayas thus points to a loss of imagination regarding what we desire. It is not enough to state that we need buildings to provide us shelter and the money to go smoothly through daily modern life. It is also equally, or perhaps even more important, to ask what such developmental projects do to the natural environment, our first home, that existed in some kind of balance with the constructed dwellings of humanity. The rapidity with which such balance has been eroding every passing moment of the contemporary zeitgeist is not only shocking, but unethical too. To cite de Baton again, We owe it to the fields that our houses will not be the inferiors of the virgin land they have replaced. We owe it to the worms and the trees that the building we cover them with will stand as promises of the highest and most intelligent kinds of happiness. Likewise, we owe it to the Himalayas that the human endeavors we subject them to do not evolve as a form of domination, but rather as a dialogue between the desires of men and the destiny of mountains. Thank you for joining us on Global Disconnect. Stay curious, keep questioning, and remember that understanding our interconnected world is an ongoing process. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you prefer listening to your favorite podcast shows.